0: Well, let me let me pray for our time, and we will we will jump into Luke eighteen. Oh, Father, thank you for uh, your grace and your mercy. Thank you that when we do we cry out to you for mercy, you respond. You are a personal God who responds to our request, and and we do, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us through your Son Jesus Christ. And, As we study this passage this morning, I pray that uh, you would be glorified through our time. I pray you would use the truth of your word to change us now, to sanctify us with your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we are in Luke 18. Um, if, If you remember from those that were here last week, we started out. He started out with a parable of the of the persistent widow is what it's called in this in this um translation. So this widow that persistently came to this unrighteous judge and then he moved on to had a second one about the uh guys that were praying at the temple the Pharisee and the tax collector and and the stark comparison between the two. Uh, moving on, he's going to have another story. Um, this one's not a parable. It's actually someone who came to Jesus. So then a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, So what's the scene here? This ruler comes to Jesus. From other, um, from Matthew and other passages, Mark, we find that he's, he's a young ruler and he's rich. So he's, he's a rich young ruler. What's wrong with his question to Jesus? Yeah, what must I do? Well, there is a way to earn salvation, right? To lead a perfect life. But that's not possible for for fallen humans to do. So this ruler, he's described as young in Matthew. He comes with this question. He prefaces it with this, I don't know if he's trying to, Earn Jesus accolades or what? He's a good teacher. And then he wants to know what religious activities must be done to inherit salvation. Uh, Mark tells us that this man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from Mark, we see that, you know, this guy was at least sincere in his, in his questions. He recognized the authority of, of Jesus better than the other religious leaders did. So what is Jesus' response to him? Says, and, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So what's the first issue he, he raises, Jesus raises with this man? Yeah, nobody's good, right? So he redefines what good means. You see, for us and, and for the, the people at that time, we think of good as a relative term, right? Like, we think of, you know, like, I think, okay, my barbecue's pretty good when I barbecue something until I've had Rob Rainey's, and then I realize, okay, mine's not any good. But um, Jesus points out it's not a relative term. In fact, it's an, it's an absolute term, and the only one that qualifies as good is God. Then Jesus goes on he says you know the commandments do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal do not bear false witness honor your father and your mother so he defines good for this man right he basically gives him five of the commandments what's unusual or what's what are the what's the characteristic of these five the commandments can be divided between those between us and God and then those between us and other people, right? Well, that's what these five are. They're commandments that deal with our interaction with other people. So It's not necessarily our relationship with God. And he's defining good as somebody who's sinless, basically is what Jesus is saying. If you want to be good, okay, you can be good. you got to obey the law perfectly to be good. And this this rich young ruler said, all these I have kept from my youth. How do you describe that response? What would you tell somebody who who claim they're they're without sin. fire. Yeah. It's a pretty arrogant response, isn't it? I mean, this guy came sincere. I mean, he he knelt before Jesus, he was sincere in his question, but now he's he's certainly arrogant in his his self-righteous attitude. Um he claimed to have obeyed the law perfectly. This is the same pharisaical attitude that they had earlier when Jesus talked to them about divorce and they you know they followed the the rule of halal where basically you could divorce if your wife you know served a bad meal or something I mean it was it's ludicrous it's not the way God designed marriage and he, they were lowering God's standard to a point where they could follow it. Well, that's what this man had done. He must have lowered the standards if he thinks he's followed them since his youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. So...
1: That's absolutely. People truly believe they're without sin, but it's, it's self deception.
0: You know, the, the first step in, in receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ is an understanding that we need a Savior. It's recognition of our sin. If we fail to recognize our sin, it's like, well, hey, I'm good with God. No, we're not. So here Jesus is pointing out to this man that he's got a problem. He brought out the sins that focused on human relationships, and now he brings out this command that focuses on our relationship with God. This man had placed his riches ahead of God, which is what? It's idolatry. He had an idol, and Jesus is pointing out to him what it is. His worldly possessions were an idol to him. When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Other other passages say he, he went away. Matthew says he... He went away sad. Um, This man's possessions were an idol to him. So when Jesus said, give them away, he was like, "I I can't do that. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus' point here? Is he saying that there are not going to be any rich people in heaven? He's not condemning wealth. What we need to understand is what did Jesus define as a rich person? We think of a rich person being someone who has a lot of possessions, whether it's money or houses or cars or whatever it is. And, you know, I think Jesus is saying that a rich person is somebody who's trusting in their riches for salvation so it's not necessarily that they had wealth it's where they placed wealth wealth was their was was their status it was their the most important thing in their life now He's telling them that it's not a means of salvation. In their day, the religious leaders would have said, oh, this guy is wealthy, God has blessed him, which is a a trap we fall into in our society as well. People often think of, you know, if, if they if their stock portfolio is doing well, well god has blessed them or what whatever it is and it can be a blessing from god but it can also be a curse if that's what you're trusting in because you tend to, to it tends to become your idol and you lose your your focus on god those who trust in in possessions for security don't have an eternal perspective because You know, we all know you can't take it with you when you die. Possessions are, are for this life, not for the next life. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So is Jesus saying you have to earn salvation by giving away your possessions? Maybe if you're maybe if idolatry was your problem, that's what you should do, but but that would be promoting works-based salvation. So I don't think that's what he's he's saying. I believe he's referring to this rich man as one who trusted in his possessions to gain salvation. I think a better interpretation is that genuine faith begins with an understanding that our good works will never earn salvation. It's only through trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ that you can be saved. Jesus is stating it's impossible for man to earn God's favor. But salvation's available by trusting in Jesus Christ. I think that's the point that he's making. It's impossible for man to earn God's favor, but it's certainly possible for God to save mankind through faith in his Son. Peter, I I love Peter. Peter said, Sir, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what did Peter do? To follow Jesus. There's something unusual about Peter versus the other disciples. He's the only one that we know was married. We don't think the others were. Um, we know he was married because it, it refers to that. So he, he left his wife, perhaps the dream of a family. We don't know. But. Um, He'd had a successful fish, fishing business. He gave that up. So he'd given up a lot to follow Jesus, but it wasn't anything like what this, what Jesus had asked this ruler to give up. So he undoubtedly thought, well, well, okay, d- did I give up enough? You know, he he probably wondered at this point, you know, do I need to realign my priorities? You know. Because this rich, long ruler needed to give away his possessions. Well, I, I didn't have anywhere near what he had. So, what behavior did Jesus encourage in his response? Putting
1: God's kingdom
0: first. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really a a priority issue is what he's focused on. He encourages his followers by pointing out the eternal rewards that are gained for following him. There may be a sacrifice in this life for following Jesus, which, you know, as believers, we are going to face sacrifices for following Jesus Christ but what Jesus is saying is that the rewards gained in heaven are significantly greater. So you can give up a little here to gain a lot for eternity. But from that perspective, it's it should make it easier to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So I I pulled out a few prophecies for us to look at just because uh, there's a lot of them, uh, but I didn't pull a lot out. I just pulled out three, I think, uh, from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So what's the prophecy there about Jesus Christ? What's he going to do that he hadn't done yet? He's going to going to be a ruler, right? He's going to take the throne of David. Um, he's going to rule with justice and righteousness from David's throne. Like fact, that still has not occurred. That will come when he returns as the conquering king. Another one is Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. It's very So so
1: you would separate the throne of David from uh from sitting at the right hand of God the Father? That those
0: are two different thrones? Well, i I think of the throne of David as the human throne that that Christ when he returns will will fulfill when he when he comes as the conquering king. That's the interpretation I take. I separate his first and second coming, the suffering servant versus the conquering king, because he's not—he's not taken the throne in human perspective. You know, you could you could argue that he's taken the throne when he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but the interpretation I'm taking is that it, it'll be the an earthly throne. The second uh, prophecy from Isaiah is obviously about the the suffering that he had before the cross, right? I mean, he voluntarily suffered. They struck his back. I mean, he was flogged. They spit on him. They mocked him. They treated him disgracefully. Uh uh-huh. um, So
1: when Jesus ascended into heaven, His words were, "All power has been given to me on heaven and on earth." Therefore, He gave His command as His first command as the ruling King. Uh, so, so that that's how I have always viewed the Great Commission, because that was His first act as sitting on David's throne as He ascended into heaven, was that He has all power on earth, and so His first act was to. Uh, Command his church to, to make disciples of all nations um, can, you, can you explain that that's
0: your... one interpretation of that I don't feel like he's taken the throne of of David yet because I think it will be when he returns in the millennial kingdom but that's I there there's more than one way to interpret that and I'm not saying that my interpretation is absolutely correct but it's it's the it's a position I've, I've taken, but there are, yeah, there are different interpretations of that. Some that don't believe there'll be a, a full millennial kingdom, but I think there will be. From Isaiah uh, 53, it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus bore the sins of mankind on the cross. He suffered not for what he had done, but for what mankind had done. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So... What are the prophecies just Jesus listed that would happen? He's going to be arrested. He's delivered over to the Gentiles. Well, okay, he was, he was betrayed and arrested by the Romans. Then he's going to be mistreated, right? What all does it say? It says he'll be mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged. Um, that all happened. If you didn't know better, you'd think that was written after the fact, but it it wasn't. It was written before these events happened. Then he's going to be killed. He, He was crucified. But that's not the end of the story he's going to be raised from the dead resurrected he was resurrected on the third day just as he said you know a successful completion of of this of his messianic mission it's going to look like a failure from a human perspective from a human perspective they all expected him to be what the king they wanted him we want you on the throne now we want you to to free us from roman rule but he had to be the suffering servant before he could be the conquering king and i don't think anyone or at most a very few recognized that And here's why. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So why didn't they understand what Jesus was saying? It was hidden, right? So God didn't reveal it to them. So what did they not have at that point? They didn't have the Holy Spirit, but, you know, if you think about it, if they knew that, for example, that Judas was going to betray Jesus, would they have let it happen? Are you kidding? If Peter would draw a sword against soldiers, what was he going to do against Judas? You know, they're going to pummel the poor guy. No way they'd let him betray Christ. This is an example of hearing without understanding. So they're hearing what Jesus said, but they're not fully understanding it because God hid the truth from them because he had a plan. God had a plan that had to be fulfilled, and the disciples would have gotten in the way. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. So what's the next scene here? His entourage is walking on to, to Jericho. And this there's a beggar next to the road. They're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover. And there's this blind beggar. What would have been the Jewish view of that man? Uh, You must have done something. You are, yeah, cursed. Your blindness is a judgment from God. You see, they would have really contrasted This rich young ruler who they thought, oh, he must be blessed by God because of his possessions and his his status and everything. But this blind beggar, his poverty and his blindness, uh, that's a judgment from God. What have you done to, to be cursed like this? In reality, both men were in need of a savior, right? Both of them needed faith in Christ to be forgiven. Both of them faced God's judgment for sin, which is death, without faith in the Messiah. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So how does this blind beggar respond to the crowd? I think Jesus had a pretty big entourage. So he's like, boy, there's a a big crowd coming. He can't see them, but he can hear. There's a big crowd. What is going on? This isn't the normal foot traffic going into Jericho. There's something, something different going on. He recognizes it's not a normal crowd. He wants to know what it is. They tell him, so how does he address Jesus? Son of David, what does that mean? It's a messianic title, right? He's recognizing Jesus as one who is fulfilling these prophecies. He cries out to mercy for him. He made the connection of who Jesus was and called him by his rightful title, the son of, of David, heir to the throne of Israel. Isaiah 11 prophesies that there'll be a descendant from Jesse, David's father, who would serve as king of Israel, and that would be the Messiah. These kind of prophecies are what Sam is what leads me to think that he's got to come back as the as a a human king. Because that's what it sounds like to me with, with these prophecies. I know there's other ways of interpreting that. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. How did they respond to the beggar? Quiet. Shut him up. What did they think the beggar wanted? He just wanted a handout, is what they thought, right? Right? they don't even seem to recognize what he's calling jesus they think he just wants a handout so but he cries out even more in in fact the original language talks about how it's it's a very passionate cry of help he's he's desperate in seeking compassion from the Lord. I think he, he probably saw Jesus as his only hope, which for any of us, that's a true statement. Jesus is our only hope of salvation. There is no other way to be forgiven of sin. He's our only hope. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. So how did Jesus respond to him? Bring this man to me. I want to to talk with him. His plea worked. Jesus stopped despite all the attempts, probably even his disciples, to silence him. Then the man addresses Jesus as Lord. He asked for restoration of his sight. When Jesus told them, Your faith has made you well, I think it was more than just his physical sight. I think Jesus recognized this guy knows who I am. He's trusting in me, and because of that, he's not only going to get his sight, but he's going to be forgiven of his sins. He's going to receive salvation. He was healed both physically and spiritually. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So, what actions did the man take after he's healed? We don't know how long he'd been blind, but probably a while if he's, if he's a beggar. He, he glorifies God. And his actions were contagious. Did you notice that? It says, and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. To glorify is to, means to magnify, praise, or honor God. And we, why do we honor God? We honor God for his attributes and his actions. His character is perfect. And the actions that he's done have redeemed us. He also, I mean, he, he began by creating us and we could spend hours talking about what he's done for us. So this blind beggar received healing and salvation, glorifying God. But the the rich young ruler failed to recognize Jesus was the way of salvation. Perhaps he did later in life. We don't know. But at this point, the rich young ruler had gone away sad. See, the Jews would have thought the opposite, that God was blessing the rich man and this blind man was suffering as a consequence for sin. But in reality, both needed the Savior, but only one responded properly to Jesus. One recognized him as the Messiah and received forgiveness. So what are some lessons out of this? Religious practices are never going to earn salvation. I like to think of religion as as man's way of trying to earn favor with God. And from that perspective, Christianity is not really a religion like the religions of the world. Sam? That, so I think still yeah, there is an aspect of, of religious activities that Christianity should follow. Um, there are other things such as um, baptism and communion or thing, ordinances that we should follow. But those religious activities are not to earn salvation. They're to be done as an act of worship for what Christ has done for us. So there are religious activities that Christians should do. And don't don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't do those. But they're not to earn God's favor. They're to, to praise him, to worship him for what he's done for us. Humble recognition of sin is essential. This rich young ruler was not willing to, to recognize his sin. Even when Jesus pointed it out to him pretty bluntly, he went away sad. He, he wasn't willing to admit his problem of idolatry. And finally the this blind beggar recognized jesus as the messiah you know jesus christ it's important what we understand about jesus christ we have to understand that he was fully god he was deity he was also fully man as well as the messiah the chosen one the one who fulfilled the prophecies of the old testament See, if Jesus wasn't fully God, well, he said he was one with his father. He was a liar if he wasn't fully God. If he wasn't fully man, then he didn't really die on the cross. Well, without his sacrificial death, we've got a serious problem. Because there's not redemption for mankind without the shedding of blood, death. And he has to be the Messiah, the chosen one. Without fulfilling those prophecies, then he wasn't who he said he was. So how do we apply these things? So what are you relying on for salvation? It needs to be faith in Jesus Christ. It can't be... Religious activities that earn God's favor, just because we go to church or because you know, whatever activity you want to come up with, it's not going to be good enough. But what Christ did for us is he paid the penalty so we could be forgiven. How willing are you to confess sin and, and seek mercy from God? See, mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. We deserve the penalty for sin, which is death. But instead, he gives us his righteousness. He graciously redeems us. Finally, who do you believe Jesus to be? If you believe he was the son of God who came to redeem mankind, he was the Messiah who died on the cross for your sins. Who do you know that needs to know that? We've all got friends, family, neighbors that need to hear the truth about Jesus Christ. God uniquely positions us in life to be able to share the gospel with other people that might not hear it otherwise. How they respond to what you tell them is, is between them and God, but our responsibility is to share the truth.
2: Any thoughts or questions about this passage? When we read the rich young ruler, the Sermon on the Mount came to my mind where he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but anyone who has anger. And he equates that. And so the perspective of idolatry in that story makes sense, but there's another perspective of looking at your inward and external, internal, external obedience or disobedience. And me like if you look at the section do not commit adultery do not murder do not steal those are all outward sins that you can keep tally of like as a human like, right. okay i haven't done that i haven't done that but then he gets to the inward part of his heart which is the ultimate problem right in where he finds his satisfaction and everything and that's his wealth for that man but for all of us Believers, unbelievers—it's a good picture of how we should always be looking at ourselves the same way, not just looking right. at oh, on the outside. I'm good here, here, and here. Check, because really, most of our sin, all of our sin, stems from the inside problem.
0: Right. And it's typically—I mean, if you go through those commandments, okay, you shouldn't commit adultery. Well, he says, if you look at lust, mm-hmm. you've committed adultery. Well, that. There's not a man alive that can't say mm-hmm. I've had struggled with that. The so whole all these, through the last couple of sections we've been doing, it's all about the that part position compared right. to the outward. You look at the guys praying, and you know, it's the difference between outward holiness and real true inward. So this this truth that Jesus told them that. You know, it's it's impossible for a rich man to pass through the eye of a camel. You know, it's easier for a rich man to, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's an impossible thing from a human perspective. But then the salvation that God can bring, we're going to see that played out in the the next story in this in Luke. So it, it's it's kind of a neat story in, in in the next chapter. So so stay tuned. It's gonna it's gonna come 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 about right away. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your grace, your mercy. Father, this this blind beggar cried out for mercy. He knew his need for salvation, and you answered it. You responded to him, even though the, those with Jesus tried to, to stop him. Jesus intervened and, and brought that man to faith. Father, thank you that through Jesus Christ we can be redeemed forgiven, can have eternal life with you. Father, help us to share that truth with others in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.